For this milestone 150th episode, I bring you my top three nutrition strategies to promote brain and mental well-being. Tune in to hear more only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist. We'll be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 150, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. On this podcast, it is my goal to enhance our emotional intelligence and our nutritional intelligence with actionable and evidence-based information. So, How are you doing today? Are you feeling okay? Thank you for inviting me into your day, and I hope that you will learn something new from this episode. Because today is a special milestone episode, episode 150, I wanted to cover a topic that is important to me, and that is nutrition and our brain. As many of you know, I was initially trained in dietetics and nutrition, but for the last seven years, I've been studying behavioral neuroscience. For example, I study, why do we make the decisions we do? Why do we choose particular foods? How do do foods and drugs influence our brain? Why are we addicted to drugs and, dare I even say, addicted to sugar? How can we use that understanding of our brain to our advantage? So in this podcast, I aim to be as unbiased as possible to share the evidence with you. So oftentimes I will share the scientific evidence and then I leave it up to you to do with it what you will. But for today's episode, I wanted to share with you what I think might be some of the most important evidence-based strategies in nutrition that can promote brain health and mental well-being. So today, I'm going to share with all of you what I think, in my opinion right now, are the top three most important things that we could focus on and consider in our diet. Do you have any idea what that might be? Keep listening on to find out. But before we do, as we always do, Let's get into a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. For today's foregone fact, I bring you again the Minnesota Starvation Study led by Ansel Keys during World War II in 1944. Very sadly, famine and starvation were occurring globally during the war, and it was unknown how to properly care for individuals that were battling with long starvation. This is where the scientist Ansel Keys came in. He sought healthy men to volunteer in this clinical trial of starvation. The slogan for the brochures he handed out in order to recruit volunteers said, Will you starve that they be fed? 36 men that were conscientious objectors proudly volunteered for the study, saying that they felt this was their way to serve their country in a nonviolent way. The main objective was to characterize the physical and mental effects of starvation on healthy men by observing them under normal baseline conditions, subjecting them to semi-starvation, 
and then following them under conditions of rehabilitation and refeeding. The experiment started in November 1944. The men began for three months with eating 3,200 calories a day, which met their energy requirements. This was followed by a six-month semi-starvation period in which they received 1,800 calories of food a day in order to lose 25% of their body weight or more. The diet consisted of foods likely available to those during the famine and hardship in Europe, such as potatoes, turnips, rutabagas, dark bread, and macaroni. The men were closely monitored and lived and worked on campus during this time. They were expected to do 22 miles or 35 kilometers of walking every week. The men lost significant weight. There are photographs available of the participants in the studies reported, and they look considerably malnourished. How difficult that must have been for them, I can't even imagine. But when the men were interviewed thereafter, they felt proud of their contribution to help those during the war. And one of the most significant findings that Keyes had reported was the dramatic effect that starvation had on the men's mental health, their mental stability, and their personality. They reported that the participants became aggressive and protective of their food rations, that they developed irritability, insomnia, anxiety, depression, and obsessions of food. I think that this study gave us very insightful information as to how not obtaining enough calories and not obtaining enough nutrients can have an incredibly dramatic effect on our mental well-being and our persona. It was one of the first studies to really highlight the connection between nutrition and brain and mental health. This study is a testament to how much nutrition can impact the brain in oneself. It was not that long ago that the study of nutrition came into existence. Scientists battled for decades to prove that vitamins were the cause of disease, or rather deficiency of the vitamin, could be the cause of a disease such as pellagra. That was happening back in the early 1900s into the 1930s. Now today we accept nutrition as a science and that nutrition can impact our mental well-being. But it is still a fairly new science, which makes nutrition a constantly changing but exciting field to be in. Now, taking that into consideration in today's episode, I give three nutrition strategies to promote brain and mental well-being. So, let's get into the core takeaways of today's episode. In episode 150, I will share with you what I think are three very relevant and easy strategies that might have a significant impact on our brain health and our mental health by using nutrition. So in this episode, I will talk about one, getting adequate magnesium, two, following a diet low in advanced glycation end products, and three, incorporating omega-3 fatty acids into the diet while avoiding the production of lipid peroxides. So how about we get into those scientific details? Let's start off with the first tip that I'm going to share with all of you today, which is getting enough magnesium. So why did I choose this as the top strategy to promote brain and mental health? Because one, the grand majority of us do not get enough magnesium in our diet, and most multivitamin and multimineral supplements do not contain magnesium. Two, because magnesium deficiency is literally a way that we induce anxiety in research models. And three, 
We know that magnesium is essential for many neurobiological processes that inhibit stress. So let's get into those details of magnesium. Magnesium is incredibly important as it plays a significant role in a ton of pathways and reactions in our body and in our brain. For example, magnesium is necessary for reactions involving energy production as magnesium is found in the mitochondria of our cells and it is necessary to help produce the energy molecule ATP. As a result, it has been observed that an individual deficient in magnesium may have low energy levels and fatigue. Magnesium is also pivotal in our muscles being able to contract, our nerves functioning, to help control our blood glucose levels and our blood pressure. It is important in how our heart contracts and how calcium enters into our cells to activate many cellular processes. Because of magnesium's role in so many of these essential processes, Pickering in the journal Nutrients in 2020 reviewed how a magnesium deficiency may manifest as many things, such as fatigue, irritability, mild anxiety and nervousness, muscle weakness, muscle cramps, gastrointestinal upset, and difficulty sleeping. Lucasi in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in the year 2000 reviewed how physically active individuals may require even more magnesium than the average person. They estimate that the grand majority of us do not consume enough magnesium, with estimates of approximately 76 to 86% of us not getting enough. So this is another reason why this was my top suggestion, because chances are the majority of us are not getting enough magnesium. The paper that really piqued my interest in this topic was by Pickering in the journal Nutrients in 2020, because they wrote on how stress, whether it be psychological or physical stress, may induce magnesium loss and magnesium deficiency may make it even harder for our body to cope with stress. So it's quite the vicious cycle that stress can cause magnesium depletion and magnesium deficiency may cause stress. Some symptoms of magnesium deficiency that I mentioned earlier, but even more here, include irritability, nervousness, lack of energy, difficulty concentrating, and weakness. You can imagine how these feelings would make it more difficult to handle stressful situations, right? If we don't have the energy, the patience, or the calm to deal with situations, which more difficult that would be. So how does magnesium play a role in reducing stress and anxiety? Well, magnesium is essential in the conversion of the amino acid tryptophan to serotonin. And serotonin is an important neurotransmitter or neuromodulator for stabilizing our mood. Serotonin is then converted into melatonin, which is important for our sleep. So magnesium is needed for these two incredibly important neuromodulators and chemicals in our brain that are related to mood and sleep. Magnesium also has the ability to inhibit the stress response in our brain by reducing the levels of adrenocorticotropic hormone in the hypothalamus of the brain, which will reduce the production of cortisol by the adrenal glands, a stress hormone, so that's another reason why magnesium can help reduce stress by reducing levels of cortisol. Magnesium can also prevent hyperexcitability in certain brain regions. It can do that by antagonizing or blocking the glutamate receptor, the NMDA receptor. There are a lot of known mechanisms as to how magnesium can reduce stress and anxiety because it has that negative feedback mechanism on the stress response within the brain. So let's say we want to aim to get more magnesium in our diet. Let's talk food sources. What are some high sources? Dark chocolate is one. One ounce of dark chocolate can give 64 milligrams, or approximately 16% of the recommended dietary intake. 
One whole avocado gives 58 milligrams or 15% of the daily requirement. Nuts such as almonds, cashews, and Brazil nuts. One ounce of almonds gives about 20% of the requirement. Lentils, chickpeas, and beans are a good source. For example, one cup of cooked black beans can give 30% of the requirement. Seeds like pumpkin seeds, flaxseed, and chia seeds are also a good source. For example, one ounce of pumpkin seeds gives 30%, 37% the requirement. One cup of cooked spinach gives 39%. Bananas, whole grains, fatty fish like salmon, leafy greens are also good sources. So let me give an example of what we could eat in one day to reach our goal for magnesium. If we ate one ounce of pumpkin seeds, one ounce of dark chocolate, one cup of cooked spinach, and a banana, that would help us be very close to reaching our goal for our daily requirement of magnesium. Now, how about supplements? A few studies showed that soluble preparations are generally better absorbed, and magnesium aspartate, citrate, lactate, and chloride have a superior bioavailability compared to magnesium oxide and sulfate. Eights in the year 2019 in the journal Biological Trace Element Research found that the supplemental form of magnesium magnesium citrate significantly increased magnesium levels in the brains of mice. Now, a side effect of magnesium supplementation can be laxation or loose stools and stomach upset, and that usually occurs with intakes greater than 350 milligrams of supplemental magnesium, so please do keep that in mind. But overall, in general, we suggest to obtain magnesium from food because these foods rich in magnesium also have many other healthful nutrients, especially potassium, which should be in balance with magnesium because magnesium and potassium work in tandem in a lot of different processes and makes magnesium more effective, so to speak. Now, I have seen some electrolyte powders to be mixed in water that contain both potassium and magnesium. These might be very beneficial for some, particularly for athletes or individuals that follow intermittent fasting. But as always, please do seek the advice of your physician or your dietitian. As for example, an individual living with Kidney insufficiency or kidney failure needs to be very careful with limiting their potassium intake, so please always do seek the advice of your physician. If you're interested in this topic, I go into a lot more detail in episode 122 on the importance of magnesium in the diet, if that topic interests you. Okay, my number two most evidence-based nutrition strategy to promote brain and mental health would have to say it is to limit advanced glycation end products. So what are advanced glycation end products? They essentially are the result of when a sugar molecule has combined with a protein, fat, or DNA. Now this is seen as a bad thing because when the sugar has combined with these type of molecules in our body, this new sugar protein or sugar DNA complex cannot work properly. And this often induces an immune response because this new molecule seems foreign to the body. It is as though the body is saying, what is this? Let's attack it with inflammation. The sugar combining with the fat, protein, or DNA in our body is typically an irreversible process. So once the sugar has bound to the protein, fat, or DNA, it is stuck there until our body removes the molecule. Think of it like getting gum stuck in our hair. Is really hard to remove and often the way to fix it is to cut the hair off. So the way our body fixes this glycation is by eventually breaking it down and secreting it in the urine. 
These glycation products build up in our bodies the older we become and might contribute to the concept known as inflammaging, higher levels of inflammation as we age. Back in the year 2000 in the Journal of Biological Chemistry, scientists illustrated that the type of cells in our body that are very susceptible to advanced glycation end products are our collagen cells. Now, collagen can be found in our skin and particularly in the cartilage of our joints. The reason why collagen is very susceptible to the buildup of advanced glycation end products is because collagen has a very slow turnover period. What this means is fresh collagen is not replacing the older collagen in our joints at a very quick rate. So the buildup of these advanced glycation end products can be particularly high in our joints. And they estimate that collagen may completely turn over or get replaced every 15 years there. And as a result, it is speculated that advanced glycation end product buildup in the joints can significantly contribute to arthritis. So you may be wondering, how do advanced glycation end products form in our body? How can I avoid this? Well, accumulation of these products in the body is accelerated under conditions of high blood glucose. So for example, in the context of diabetes or with high sugar intake in our diet. High oxidative stress, such as in those who smoke cigarettes, those exposed to heavy air pollution or heavy metals, for example, may also increase the levels of advanced glycation end products. In animal studies, high intakes of sugar, and particularly a high intake of fructose, seem to increase the level of advanced glycation end products in their blood and in their organs. Now, sugar can be hidden in a lot of food items too. It's not necessarily just the desserts and candies. For example, things like white rice, white bread, white pasta, sauces, salad dressings, wine, beer, breakfast cereals may also be sources of hidden sugars or simple carbohydrates. So checking the nutrition labels to look at the amount of added sugar is important and trying our best to limit those the best that we can. But besides the high intake of sugar, how else might advanced glycation end products increase in our bodies? Well, it was about 15 years ago that it was realized that advanced glycation end products don't just form in our body by eating high amounts of sugar, but they may also be present in the foods that we eat. In the American Journal of the Dietetic Association in 2004, scientists analyzed the amount of glycation products in foods. In general, foods that are high in fat and high in protein, that are cooked at high temperature with low moisture present, have the highest advanced glycation end product levels. For example, fried bacon has some of the highest content of advanced glycation end products. Meats sometimes contain 12-fold higher advanced glycation end product content than carbohydrate foods like breads. Cooking methods like grilling on high heat seemed to produce the most advanced glycation end products, whereas cooking methods like roasting with a liquid or steaming produced less. So it appears that cooking at high temperature with no liquid present is the method that produces the most advanced glycation end products. Other foods that appeared higher in these products included toasted crust of bread and roasting of nuts. Now it is really important that I say here these foods are not a no list, as that can potentially lead to disordered eating. I just want us to be aware of what we are eating and to take that into consideration. Not that we can never have bacon and not that we should feel bad if we do eat bacon, but simply to appreciate that maybe we don't want to eat fried bacon every single day. 
due to its high content of advanced glycation in products. Uri Bari in 2005 reviewed that advanced glycation end products seem to potentially impact heart health, brain health, skin health, and in general, our inflammation levels. For example, in the journal Diabetes in 2003, a group of patients with diabetes were asked to consume a drink rich in advanced glycation end products that did not contain sugar. Then the participants later had their blood vessel health measured by pulse wave velocity. 90 minutes after consuming the beverage high in advanced glycation end products, the advanced glycation end products increased in their blood, and the dilation of their blood vessels, a marker for blood vessel health, was significantly impaired. These findings demonstrated an acute, harmful effect of advanced glycation end products on endothelial function and blood vessel health. Last year in the journal Nutrients, Dakuna reviewed the impact of advanced glycation end products on brain health and how these products may influence the functioning of the mitochondria in the brain and therefore the risk of dementia. Advanced glycation end products may also be implicated in tau tangles and amyloid beta buildup found in the brain in research models of Alzheimer's. So these end products have also been implicated in dementia and cognitive decline. So if we accept that advanced glycation end products may be harmful to our heart and brain health, then how can we reduce them? And if we reduce them, does it have benefit? Well, in the journal PNAS in 2002, scientists recruited 24 patients living with diabetes. The participants were asked to follow a diet low in advanced glycation end products and then crossed over to eat a diet high in advanced glycation end products, and they were tested for markers of inflammation. The two study diets were designed to have similar content of calories, protein, carbohydrate, and fat, but they differed only in their amount of advanced glycation end products by five-fold. They were able to regulate the amount of advanced glycation end products simply by the cooking time, the temperature, and the method of cooking. For example, the low advanced glycation end product diet had the participants eat non-roasted nuts, so raw nuts, non-toasted bread, and meats that were cooked in liquid at low temperature, also with the combination of an acid like lemon or vinegar. If when an acid like lemon or vinegar is added to the meat when cooking, it can also reduce the amount of advanced glycation products produced. So when the participants followed the low advanced glycation and product diet, the scientists observed a reduction in circulating advanced glycation and products in their blood and in their urine. And they also noted a reduction in markers of inflammation, such as C-reactive protein, TNF-alpha, and VCAM1. For example, C-reactive protein is a well-known marker of chronic inflammation, and it reduced by 32% on the low advanced glycation and product diet versus baseline. That's pretty profound. Simply changing the method of cooking could reduce a marker of inflammation by 32%. In another clinical trial in 2014, 74 women were asked to follow a low advanced glycation and product diet or a high advanced glycation and product diet for four weeks. The high advanced glycation end product diet was instructed to fry, bake, roast, or grill their foods, to consume toasted bread with the crust, and the low advanced glycation end product group was instructed to boil or steam their food and to consume bread without the crust. After four weeks of eating the low advanced glycation end product diet, the women saw an improvement in their insulin sensitivity by 8.5% versus baseline whereas the women who were following the high advanced glycation and product diet saw a worsening in their insulin sensitivity from baseline by 11%. Again, those are really big changes just from primarily changing the method of cooking. 
It is clinical trials like this that I think can help us understand how small changes to our diet may have a really big impact on our brain health and our overall health. An improvement in insulin sensitivity as seen here is important in the context of diabetes. We want ourselves to be sensitive to insulin so that our blood sugar levels remain normal. So the fact that following this low advanced glycation end product diet simply by adjusting the cooking temperature and time resulted in some improvements to insulin sensitivity is quite remarkable. And the reason why insulin sensitivity might be key to our brain health is because Alzheimer's is characterized by improper utilization of glucose by the brain. So our glucose metabolism and our insulin sensitivity is certainly linked to our brain health and our longevity and our risk for Alzheimer's. So my second tip here for episode 150 is to try our best to reduce our advanced glycation end products in our diet. So what is my final and third most evidence-based nutrition tip to promote brain and mental health? Well, one of my specialties is understanding the fats in our diet and how we metabolize those fats in our body and the impact that can have on our health. So my third tip is to talk about omega-3 fatty acids and trying our best to reduce lipid peroxides. Now, I do a lot of research on omega-3 fatty acids and how those fatty acids can become oxygenated or oxidized and how those can significantly impact our inflammation, our immune system, our feelings of pain, chronic conditions like heart disease, a stroke, dementia, etc. So overall, based on 15 years of conducting research in this area, I would say that a lot of research points to omega-3 fatty acids having the ability to resolve inflammation and in general being protective of our brain and mental health. Omega-3 fatty acids, for example, can be found in walnuts, flaxseed, algae, hemp seed, chia seed, salmon, and sardines, for example. Liao in the journal Translational Psychiatry in 2019 conducted a meta-analysis which pooled together 26 different clinical trials to understand if consuming omega-3 fatty acids could impact symptoms of depression. The scientists had realized that yes, indeed, omega-3 fatty acids can have a benefit to lowering severity of symptoms of depression in individuals that were living with depression. Now, some key features from this meta-analysis was that the omega-3 fatty acid, in particular EPA, or eicosa pentanoic acid, seemed to be of particular benefit. They noticed that they saw some benefit even at doses less than one gram of EPA per day in supplemental form. Now, plant sources of the other omega-3 fatty acid, alpha-linolenic acid, or ALA, can be found in flaxseed, chia seed, hemp seed, walnuts, and ALA can be converted to EPA in our body, and as a result may have benefit as well. Omega-6 fatty acids typically oppose the omega-3 fatty acids as they compete for the same enzymes. And in general, the evidence suggests that we already obtain a lot of omega-6 fatty acids in our diet, and they may be likely to propagate inflammation or be somewhat inflammatory in our body by the oxylipins or the prostaglandins and eicosanoids that they produce. So some foods that we can try to limit within our diet in order to reduce omega-6 fatty acids include things like chips, french fries, fried foods, and pastries. 
These foods also tend to be high in lipid peroxides due to the high heat that is applied to preparing these foods. So another really crucial important thing that I learned while running clinical trials in this area is that the omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids are prone to oxidation in the formation of peroxides, which can increase inflammation and mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain and body. Lipid peroxides tend to form when omega fatty acids are heated to very high temperatures. So this is what I want us to avoid. Similar to the suggestion to lower advanced glycation end products in the diet, avoiding high dry heat cooking and avoiding the roasting of nuts high in omega-3 fatty acids can help preserve the omega-3s and prevent them from becoming oxidized and turning into lipid peroxides. This is why you might see on some labels for oils, like flaxseed oil rich in omega-3 fatty acids, the term cold-pressed. Because the other method of extracting oil from the seeds is expeller pressing. And expeller pressing the oil out of the seed produces heat. And as a result, during expeller pressing, those omega-3 fatty acids, which can be beneficial, could become harmful because the heat can turn the omega-3s into lipid peroxide. So we do not want that. So in general, obtaining omega-3 fatty acids from raw flax seeds, cold-pressed flaxseed oil, non-roasted walnuts, chia seeds, hemp seeds, and not overcooking our salmon at a very high heat. Those methods can help preserve and protect the omega-3 fatty acids that they can have benefit within our bodies, that they can help resolve the inflammation. But if we're overcooking or cooking really on really high heat our omega-3 rich foods, then that's turning the omega-3 fatty acids into something that could actually be harmful. So it's something really important that I want us to keep in mind. And I actually go into more details about that all the way back in episode 10 of the podcast. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. The top three evidence-based nutrition strategies that I think are vital and easy to follow in order to promote our brain and mental well-being. There are many other suggestions that I could have talked about, like hydration, probiotics, prebiotics, antioxidants, and more. And I talk about all these in past episodes, so feel free to scan through the past episodes and give those a listen. But in my opinion, I think the strategies that I shared today could have the potential for great impact on our brain health and our mental health. And I think that they're pretty easy to incorporate into our diet and our everyday routine, like including more food sources of magnesium, lowering advanced glycation end products in our diet by simply cooking our meat in a liquid at lower temperature, by adding lemon juice or vinegar to the meat when, it, when we cook it, avoiding the roasting of nuts, and consuming omega-3 fatty acids while reducing their formation into lipid peroxides, for example, by not overcooking or heating the omega-3 food sources. So I hope that this episode provides some useful information with the goal of this information to help us all successfully age with a better chance at having great mental well-being and a lower risk of or delayed onset of dementia. So thank you for tuning in, for hanging out with me today in this special episode. If you want extra information or to see the papers I cite in each episode, then follow me on social media. My handles are in the description box to this show. If you by chance want to buy me a coffee to say, hey, thanks for the show, Stephanie, 
And thank you so much in advance for that. And the links on how to do that are available in the description box too. I hope that you all have a wonderful and healthful two weeks. And I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks time for episode 151. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.